Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and we've got a fun show today. Uh, My guest is a Grammy-nominated musician, Benjamin Lapidus. He has traveled the world creating and performing music. He has performed uh, and or recorded film soundtracks, video games, television commercials, um, and albums with some of the most notable musicians in Latin music and jazz. He has released five internationally acclaimed albums of his original compositions, and he's also an academic scholar who is widely published on Latin music. So, Ben, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. So you have written a book entitled New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 to 1990. New York really did seem to serve as a true developmental period for for Spanish Caribbean music in America. And one of the central themes in your book is the importance of inter-ethnic collaboration. And you talk about collaborate this kind of collaboration being at the core of the New York sound. So uh, why did you decide to highlight these multicultural contributions to Latin music? Well, I think it's something that's been happening for so long, even well before the time period of this book. If you go back to when the first recordings were being made at the turn of the century, you know, the first recording of Cuban music was made in New York City in 1899. And from that point on, really, you had people of different nationalities participating in each other's bands to perform the music. You know, you had Cubans in Puerto Rican bands, you had Puerto Ricans in Cuban bands, and then you had every everybody else joining in as well. And I think that's an important tale to tell, you know, when we talk about multiculturalism, biculturalism, that, you know, people have been involved in each other's uh, cultures, uh, contributing, making music, and working with one another uh, to, you know, bring great things, make beautiful things happen. And, you know, this is just one of the manifestations of that. Most definitely. And so kind of melding the the folkloric and popular music with American jazz, rhythm and blues, rock. Um, you talk about artists kind of coming to, to, to see that everything is gradually breaking down the social barriers and kind of melding together between the demographics. And so you focus on several specific groups who made a great impact on the Latin sound in New York and and saying that it uh, the multiculturalism really helped successfully combine elements of classical jazz, Broadway, West India, Latin. So how did you decide uh, what groups to highlight? Well, that's a really good question because there were a lot of things that I had to kind of leave out and maybe that'll be in part two. But really just sort of the, the big quantities of movers and shakers in each community. I mean, and I also want to point out that, you know, it would be a mistake to say that, yes, all this interaction happened with, you know, truly harmonious, that there were no issues between communities. But I think in the musical realm, when it came to the dance floor, as well as, uh, you know, performance and recording, yes, there was, you know, real working together in, in the most positive ways you would have different groups coming together to make this happen. The first group that I that I thought was really important to point out uh, is not even, I would say, like an ethnic group, but was educators because, and there were many people of different ethnicities as educators, Panamanians, Cubans, uh, Puerto Ricans, etc. But I think, you know, just it was something that people didn't really think about. And then I think another aspect of the multiculturalism that we can really see 
different people from different backgrounds working together toward a common goal of, of say, perfecting uh, something specific would be instrument making. Instrument making, you had uh, American Jewish uh, instrument makers from, you know, Eastern Europe. You had uh, Puerto Rican instrument makers. You had, you know, people who were, were just working to make the best instruments possible for for all the musicians who played this music. And then in terms of other ethnic groups, you know, Cuban-Americans, Puerto Ricans, uh, other groups of uh, Jewish Americans, uh, you know, Dominicans, we could talk about um, African-Americans. I mean, there's just, there's just so many so many important people to to groups to recognize and and one that was also for me uh crucial to all of this was the panamanian community of musicians because panamanians historically have kind of been overlooked i think because some people couldn't determine their ethnicity so they didn't want to you know group musicians as latinos or maybe they uh, grouped them as african americans and sometimes the musicians took advantage themselves of the fact that they could slip in and out of different uh, bands and associations because their ethnicity may have been ambiguous um, to those people who were hiring them. But in reality, they're very proud of of being, you know, Panamanian and, and having West Indian roots and having uh, Spanish Caribbean roots and, and, you know, really, you know, being so well prepared to work in any situation possible in New York. So that's that's kind of like a, an, a quick overview of some of the groups of people that, that we talk about. Sure, sure. And you you kind of set the record straight on some things, uh, including correcting the assumption that Latin musicians uh, had basically learned their music on the street. So when you when you highlighted the teachers, you kind of highlighted their contribution and that a lot of Latin musicians are are very heavily trained and masters on their instrument. And you also said that many of these educators were women. And that was something that kind of has been left out of the historical narrative. So why did you decide to, to, to go up against those assumptions and set the record straight? Well, I think a few things. Number one is I love this music so much. And I think there is definitely the energy of the streets and the music because that's why people can identify with it. That's why you hear it. And that's why it's been so pervasive and, and has stood the test of time as being amazing dance music and music to enjoy but i think the the sort of negative association that's that you know it's only you know something that you you know learn by ear or do on the street is you know in a way um hasn't helped and just to show that that's not the case and that the people that we all look up to the tito puentes the ray santos is all these great musicians who left tremendous um imprints on on you know popular culture in the world really had formal educations in music and you know with all the goofing around and all the um twirling of the sticks and the smiles and stuff that you know someone like tito puente would do on stage to get people to to you know to entertain there was mm -hmm. a serious a serious musician who went to juilliard and uh you know that's i think that's sort of like the myth kind of that surrounds the music that it really only has like a kind of street aesthetic so i thought it was important to 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 point that out and then in terms of education in terms of women it was really just just you know from asking you know my elders like well how did you study who did you learn with and you know the same names kept coming up and the same things oh so and so studied with so and so and i remember her here and i want to go up to her house there and this is what she taught me and you know after a while you put together a list of different students who claimed um, some of these women as their teachers 
um, you know, it's really impressive. You know, Eddie Palmieri, Paquito Pastor, you know, the list goes the list goes on and on. And, you know, it's just another facet of telling the story. You know, I think the story is often told with a lot of repetition of the same ideas, you know, that people would go right. to one, one club to go to dance and then more people would come and then the music became more popular. You know, no one really talks about who studied with who and who taught and where they lived and who the students were and who were these women and, and how did they, you know, how do they train these great musicians? You know, everybody just kind of looks at the the finished product, I think. And I thought it was really good to demystify and just get at the nuts and bolts of, of how this whole process happens and how it's been happening for, you know, so long. And that's really what guided my, my own curiosity and my own, you know, desire to just get at the, I don't know, like the truth of it, the sort of the heart of how it all, how it all happened rather than just looking at the, the end product. Excellent. And and speaking of training, your parents were both musicians, so music is is in your blood, and you have learned how to play a wide variety of instruments. So what fueled your passion to learn? And tell me a little bit about how you became a professional musician. Um, my, it was actually my grandmother and my father who, who oh, sorry. were professional. Okay. No, it's okay. Uh, my mom, I think, did do some piano lessons, but she never went very far with it after being a kid. Um, yeah, I was I was just exposed to music from an early age and to Latin music through my uh, father's uh, uh, playing and also uh, his record collection. And then when I when I moved to New York uh, as a teenager, I was really surrounded by music and I was performing and playing with my high school friends and trying to hang out with older musicians who I really admired who were playing with the people I write about in my book so from early on I was just you know really impressed with all these musicians and and the skills that they had and all the things that they could do on on multiple instruments I think for me as a multi-instrumentalist for my parents, it was it was definitely disconcerting because they're like, wow, when is this kid going to settle on one instrument? And they started me on the piano when I was six, and then I moved to the guitar, <laughs> and then the trumpet for band in school, and then the upright bass for high school, and then back to, you know, uh, you know, all along I was playing guitar. But, you know, as you move through band programs, there's, there's really no place for guitar. So, you know, moving to the Puerto Rican Cuatro and the Cuban Tres, this was all, you know, just part of, it was just in the air. I would say it was in the water and the music was everywhere in my neighborhood. And, you know, I, I was really just inspired by both the music and, and the musicians who were around me. And just really from an early age, probably from when I was about 12 years old is when I really was like, wow, this is what I'd like to do. But when I when I got to hang with some of my heroes, uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, that's, that's, that's when I really committed to to, you know, wanting to become a, prof a professional musician. Sure, that's great. And I mean, what what a blessing to have that exposure. Most people would not have the exposure to to their heroes, to their their creative muses. And and so in addition to your personal experience uh, and your vast knowledge of the field and of the sound, you also did a lot of research for this book. This is a very heavily researched book and you did in-depth interviews and you went through historical documents. You even make an awesome glossary in the back of, of terms that have to do with uh, Latin music that most people might not know. And so you've got pictures and musical arrangements how did you decide where to gather your information and what to include well i think some of the decisions were based on 
how can we make the case about you know New York as this point and what happens specifically in New York? You know, in the back of the book, I have kind of ten points that you know ten ideas that happened in New York and why they happened, and then just trying to I think also dismantle some of the myths surrounding New York or people saying that things didn't happen. So I feel like the historical record, whether it was newspapers or interviews or documents that you know gave you an idea of what happened when were really used to serve that purpose of of kind of recasting the narrative you know in the beginning of the book there's a advertisement for a performance by miguelito valdez and johnny segui uh two really important musicians and their performance at uh, yankee stadium around 1952 it's either 52 or 54 because i couldn't line the calendar up i couldn't decide whether it was which year it was but from the original um newspaper uh that that that's something that people say happened didn't happen that there was no latin music performed at yankee stadium until you know the Fania all-stars did it in the early 70s but this advertisement showed that that wasn't the case and then there was even another event that happened in 1963 there was a latino major league baseball game that was held at uh, the old Yankee Stadium in the Polo Grounds. And after that uh, baseball game, there was a big concert by Tito Puente, La Lupe, and Tito Rodriguez as well. So, you know, there's there's probably even more evidence that shows just how deep and how far widespread this music was. But those are some of the historical documents that I thought were important to share with people and important to sort of, you know, just show how the narrative doesn't start in the 70s. It goes much, much further back. And I'm sure some great researcher is now going to find stuff that goes even further back than the stuff that I found. But really, you know, newspaper articles, really advertisements for dances. They tell you who the musicians are, who was hiring, what what night of the week they were held. I mean, it's it's really incredible when you look at the advertisements for for performances by bands on the on the social pages of uh, New York City newspapers because you really see, you know, bands from you know cubans puerto ricans dominicans panamanians performing for you know african americans italian americans uh, american jewish uh organizations and then also at just nightclubs around town there are also um specific events geared towards cubans towards um uh, puerto ricans and dominicans that were sort of patriotic in nature or commemorating historical uh, events or holidays in those countries that were happening here in New York and in New Jersey. And, and really it's, it's all there in, in the archives to see there's no, you don't, you don't have to look very hard to find it, but I think it was important to put those pieces together for people to see for themselves that it, it's, it's really part of the historical record. And, and I think this, in that way, the story kind of tells itself and doesn't, doesn't need much help for me. And, and the same thing applies to um, the advertisements for uh, percussion, who was building percussion instruments, who was building string instruments, who was repairing those instruments, mm-hmm. and and where you could study. There were there tremendous advertisements in newspapers for places um, to study who were these uh, instructors who taught that where their schools were located. So I, I just thought, um, Using all that information, in addition to the recordings, you know, the recordings tell us so much, not just the music itself, which I transcribed some of in the book, but actually looking at the album covers, you can see who the personnel are uh, on the recordings. And all of that gives you a really good picture of who did what, when, and why they did it. 
That's so amazing. Like you, you never think of a performance schedule being a historical document, but, but going back so many years and decades later, it is, I think that's, that's wonderful. Something that they just kind of threw together and put out so people would come to the club is now ending up in a book about influences. Yeah. Um, and so you, you took a look into uh, stage name, Sonny Bravo's group, which I'm sure I'm going to butcher. Um, Tipeka 73. Correct. Um, and it is, um, it, it, it was a, a multi-ethnic, ethnic salsa group and they had members from Panama, the Dominican Republic, Cubic, Puerto Rico, um, and, and and as well as New York born Latinas who um, incorporated jazz, rock, rhythm and blues. They played it over traditional Caribbean rhythms, but it was it was very much a, a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural group. Um, but you talked about how politics, world politics, impacted this music uh, when they took a trip to Cuba. So talk a little about that. Yeah, well, the group was really, really popular around the world and and really in New York and was run by Sonny Bravo, whose father had been a professional musician in the 30s, 40s and 50s with a group called uh, uh, Quarteto and Sexteto Cane and even had done some recordings under his own name of um, Elio Osakar, but uh, Sonny joined the band uh, when he was, you know, in his late teens and then started working with a whole host of important musicians in um, Spanish Caribbean music. When they got the band Tipica 73 together with uh, Johnny Rodriguez and a whole bunch of other musicians, uh, Johnny was the co-leader, they took the creme to the creme of musicians in New York and they started it with jam sessions and then they started performing and making yeah. recordings so when they reached sort of their pinnacle they decided to fulfill the dream of going to cuba to record with their cuban heroes and they went before anyone else did this you know nobody had really gone to cuba since 1959 1960 to record and perform you know sure. nat, king, nat king cole had done it sarah vaughn had done it but after um 1959 it didn't happen and in 1979 and, and a little bit later you had you know, people like Billy Joel and Weather Report, and I think Chris Christopherson even went to perform in Havana. But this was the first group that went, and it was a dream come true for the musicians. They got to see all of their heroes in Cuba. They got to record an album in Cuba, see bands uh, that they loved perform. But when they came home, that was kind of the kiss of death for the band because it was a politically unpopular move to make uh, within the community. Uh, the, the Cuban American community really looked down upon it and they had received, you know, even uh, death threats and bomb threats for their uh, performances afterwards. So the band really broke up shortly after that trip. But, you know, they they all said they would have, especially Sonny Bravo, he would have done it again if he had to just because it was such an incredible experience. You know, met, you know, Sonny and Johnny later went on to uh, play with Tito Puente and then the band got together again in the 90s and had been performing again in the 90s when I think the, the culture had changed to the effect that people were going back and forth. Cuban musicians were coming to the United States to perform and United States musicians were heading to Cuba with, with greater frequency in the 1990s. But definitely the time that they that they went to to make this kind of musical pilgrimage, it was a, a, a very uh, risky political move because they came home, it really cost them their career. Sure, sure. Now, you, in this book, it's from the 1940 to 1990. What made you decide to stop at 1990? 
Well, I should inform listeners. It's not a hard stop. <laughs> you know, I have to give a little backstory before 1940. I have to go a little bit further than 1990 in a few cases. But I Absolutely. think that, that's really like a, a really huge chunk of time to, to see all the changes and to see how, you know, different institutions lasted for, you know, whether they were educational institutions or clubs or bands um, or you know, the uh, certain ways in which people did things, like if, uh, if instruments were built in a certain way. I think that time period really uh, is sort of the, 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 the most important chunk of time in terms of the development of this music in the, in the 20th century. Now, there are some amazing books by scholars like Ruth Glasser who deal with uh, Puerto Rican musicians in New York uh, up to 1938, and that that was uh, in in truth that was really sort of something that influenced my decision to go 1940 and 1990 as well because I, oh, yeah. I I know other people have have like Ruth had had dealt with um, that that time period of 1898 uh, um, just shy of 1940, and uh, you know there have been books that are written about you know current times, so I I wanted to. Kind of put 1990 and also 1990 um for me personally was you know kind of like when i when i started my you know college career and that was you know uh that that was a personal marker for me in terms of 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 how you know i kind of got into the tail end of the period there in the 80s by being around certain musicians sure Sure. And, and so what 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 is the Latin music scene and sound like now, modern day? I think a lot of the same principles that were happening in this book, we can see them, how they have either mushroomed into other things or just grown something completely different or have stayed the same. You still have... Uh, you know, venues dedicated to this music. You still have musicians who play this music exclusively. I think the the sites of production have shifted, obviously, with the 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 ubiquitousness of the home computer, which was not something that was around, you know, 1940 to 1990. Right. So so when people want to make recordings, they can say, oh, I'm going to record this track here and email it to a friend who's going to record it there, and we can have lots of people play on a recording. Um, that's that's sort of the new reality. So I think things have shifted. Miami, where the book fair is happening, is uh, you know an important site for Latin music production, and uh, you know New York's uh, sort of supremacy is I I don't want to say it's diminished, but I think it's just changed. Sort of there are things that happen in New York that don't happen elsewhere, and there are things that happen elsewhere that don't necessarily happen in New York. So, but I think the the beginnings of all of that, uh, the sort of international aspect of musical collaboration between people of different ethnic groups around, a, you know, a you know style of music, or a, this is really Latin music is an umbrella term, which which for me includes Cuban music, Puerto Rican music, Dominican music, and any uh, sort of extension of that in New York, and and in this time period of this book is really when sort of the apex of that collaboration and recording and performance was happening and, and and that's not to say it's diminished today now you have the latin uh, academy of recording arts and sciences which is you know the parallel to the naris the grammys you have the latin yeah. grammys which also was something that was not around and and some of the musicians in this book had to actually lobby for the category of uh, best latin music record 
uh, back in the 70s. So I, I think we can see how how some of the concepts that began in this time period are now, you know, real and manifested and and have you know been put into place uh, that you know people maybe only had imagined about during the time period of the book. And now I think we are we are living that in in the best ways. Absolutely. You can tell how much you love the subject matter you're writing about. You can, you can tell. Um, and so about the Miami Book Fair. So you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair. You're participating. It's the largest gathering of writers and readers. Um, so tell me a little bit about it. You have so many great books, so many great authors. The schedule is absolutely packed from you know morning to night. I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. I, for me, it's a true honor to be you know, participating in it. It's a true honor to be in, in with all these incredible authors who have, you know, written these incredible books. And if I go out and get all of these books, I would, it would probably take me a long time to get, to, uh, get back to, uh, finishing to, uh, anything of my own, but I'm planning on, I, there's already four or five that I've ordered. So, That's <laughs> so, wonderful. so I know I'll, I'll be busy. That's wonderful. Well, and yours is is among the best books there. Um, it's you. entitled New York and the International Sound of Latin Music, 1940 to 1990. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Hannah, for having me. And uh, thanks to your listeners. And uh, it's a real pleasure. And for the authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.